All right, Colossians chapter number 1 tonight, and I'd like to read a few verses. We'll begin at verse number 9 of the book of Colossians, chapter number 1, and you read along with me as I read. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 9 says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Let's read verse 9 once more. The Word of God says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the privilege that it is to be in Your house. Lord, I'm aware there's some that could have been here that didn't want to be. But Father, I don't want to focus on them tonight. I just want to rejoice because I know there's lots that would love to be in the house of God somewhere but can't. Father, I just want to thank You and praise You that we have the opportunity to be here tonight. And I want to thank You for the One that's present in our midst. He promised us that where two or three would be gathered together in His name, that He'd show up and He'd be there. Now, Lord, help us to give the Holy Ghost liberty tonight to make the will of the Lord Jesus Christ known in our hearts and lives. Help us to glorify glorify Him as we respond in obedience. Father, we love You. We thank You for all of these things, every good gift that You've given us, Father. We thank You for it. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm interested in the phrase in verse number 9 where the Apostle Paul says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. Now, there's a few things. We're jumping in the middle of some statements that Paul is making as he opens the letter to the church at Colossae. At this point in time, Paul had not uh, met the church at Colossae. He had never seen them face to face. He expresses that desire later on in the book of Colossae. He says, I long and desire as many as I have not seen in the flesh. He said, I long and desire to see you. But it's interesting to me, he's speaking of their faith, he's speaking of their steadfastness, he's speaking of the effect that the gospel has had in their lives. He has heard from a man named Epaphras, verse 7 says, uh, of the work that God had done in their midst, and it rejoiced the heart of the Apostle Paul. I tell you, we have a lot of say in how encouraged we get. And uh, I know that we live in discouraging times, and I know that all sorts of problems and trials seem to befall and beset us all of the time. But, you know, we have some choice as to who and what we're going to focus on. The Apostle Paul got some news from this man Epaphras that there was some folks, that he may have been surrounded by pagans, Paul may have been, and heathens, may have been surrounded by a world that was collapsing around him. We believe this to be a prison epistle, and he may have been discouraged as all get out or had reason to be discouraged. 
But even in the midst of all that, he got a little bit of news about a man named Epaphras, got a hold of him and said, I want you to tell me about some folks that are serving the Lord. And we have a lot of say in who we focus on. We can focus on those that aren't serving the Lord, and we'll stay discouraged all the time. We'll be like Elijah. We'll say, well, I, you know, I, I and I alone am left, and not pay attention to those that God is still working with. Or we can be like the Apostle Paul, and in the midst of his discouragement, we can find out and hear about some folks that still love the Lord, that haven't compromised, that haven't give in and haven't give out. We can focus on the work that the Lord's doing in their lives. That's what he's speaking of when he says, for this cause also. Saying, because you're standing, because you're doing the right thing for this cause. And since the day we heard of it, he said, we didn't wait until we met you to pray for you. But the moment we heard about the work that God was doing in your midst, we began right then and right then, uh, right there, right then, praying for you. He says there's four things, and I want us to notice them tonight, that he's praying for them about. I believe we ought to pray for one another. I know that seems very simplistic, but so many of us fail in intercessory prayer for those that are around us. Uh, Samuel said that it would have been a sin if he had ceased to pray for the nation of Israel. And I believe for us that it can also be a sin of omission when we uh, cease to pray for one another. And the Apostle Paul's prayers mattered. Now, that's not to say that our prayers don't, but I think you understand what I mean. I mean, Paul was a man that prayed, got things from God. Paul was a man that understood the dynamics of prayer. Prayer is a mysterious thing to me, and I'm sure many of the folks in here would agree it's mysterious to them. And Paul would have probably said it was mysterious to him too. But I've got a feeling as I read the Word of God that it was a lot less mysterious to him than it is to me. Paul's prayers mattered. There's lots of things that we pray about and pray for, and we always try to give a real emphasis, and you know, you're home folk, you know this around here. We always try to give time for prayer requests and put an emphasis on prayer. If you listen to prayer requests, you find a lot out about a church and about folks, and I think we ought to take everything to the Lord. Uh, but it, it interests me that out of all the things Paul could have prayed for, he chose four distinct things. He could have, uh, and, and it may have been that Paul had prayed for other things for them too, but four things that he listed that he said, I want you to know that there's someone that is approaching the throne room of grace, someone that is bending the ear of an almighty God on your behalf concerning these four things. And I want to notice them tonight. I want us to pray for each other about these things, pray for ourselves, and I want us to apply these things that are found in God's Word. Notice with me verse number 9, the very first thing that Paul mentions before he says anything else. He says, We do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. The first thing Paul prayed for, for the church at Colossae, was for them to know and to do the will of God. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this first point. We preached on the will of God and how to know the will of God not too long ago. But there are three things mentioned here that I think are worth noting. I want you to notice, first off, that he prays that they would comprehend the will of God. It's a great encouragement to me to know that the will of God can be comprehended for my life. And when I speak of the will of God, I'm speaking particularly about the personal will of God that He has for my life and the personal will of God that He has for your life. Now, there are a lot of things that are in the revealed will of God, and we could spend time going over them. You know many of them, that we abstain from fornication, that we give thanks 
in all things. But it goes even a step further than that. I believe God cares and is concerned about the details of our life. And even beyond that, I believe that there is a way that we can know the will of God. I do not believe in a deist God that merely wound the clock on this universe, set it on the, uh, the, uh, the, what's the word I'm looking for, the celestial mantelpiece, and then stepped back never to have anything to do with mankind. I believe He cares about the details of our lives, and I believe based upon this and based upon the prayer that Paul made that we can know His will. I wonder how many of us ever really give thought to the will of God. Now stop and, stop and consider that. I wonder how many of us, as we plan our lives, as we plan our day to day, as we plan our week to week and month to month, I wonder how many of us really stop to consider whether what we're doing is within the will of God. Do we ever pray about the car we'll buy, about the place we'll move or the house we'll buy? Do we pray about the place where we'll work? Do we pray about the vacation that we're going to take? Uh, I, I, I promise you, friend, that if you'll spend time seeking the will of God, you'll find the will of God. The will of God can be comprehended. Notice the second thing, and, and I just want us to notice this one little word here. He prays for them to comprehend the will of God, but he prays for them to be consumed with the will of God. Notice the word that he chose, and you know that your Bible's written on purpose. It's the exact word that ought to be there, and it's there for a reason. He says, and to desire that you might be what? Filled with the knowledge of his will. Filled with it. Now, I, listen, I, I, am, I am not by any means a smart man. I'm not a physicist. But I do know one immutable fact about the reality that we live in, and that is that if something is filled with one thing, it can have none of anything else within it. To be filled means to be up to the brim, to have no more room, to have no place for anything else. And I wonder how many of us, if we were to be honest, could say honestly before God that my life is filled Filled with nothing but the will of God. Could we say that there's not an area of our life that is outside of the will of God? Could we say that we know we've prayed over everything, we've sought the face of God, and to the best of our knowledge, there is nothing in our home that ought not be there, nothing in our marriage that ought not be there, nothing in our day-to-day that ought not be there, nothing in our workplace that ought not be there, but that we are entirely filled with the will of God. Not just what God would allow, but what God would appreciate and accord for our lives. Paul says, I want you to be filled with it. I want it to be the driving force in your life. I want it to be the very thing that dictates the steps that you walk. I want you to be filled with this knowledge. I want you to be the place where you consider it above and beyond anything else, and even to such a degree that you don't even consider anything else. I wonder how many of us, what our lives would be like, I wonder how our lives would change if we purposed that we weren't going to make a decision until we had it confirmed that it was the will of God for our lives. I wonder how many of us would have stayed out of debt at times. <laughs> Wonder how many of us wouldn't have had that car blow up on us that time. Wonder how many of us would have held our tongue and not uh, damaged a friendship or a relationship uh, a time or two if we had just paused and said, I'm not going to take a step until I know it's a step that God has ordered. He wants them to be consumed with the will of God. And then I think this is interesting. I see that not only does he want them to comprehend God's will and to be consumed with God's will, but he wants them to be cultivated in God's will. Now, I, I, I'm just going to confess to you, I did a little bit of study here. I hope that's okay. 
And I, I found an interesting word in this in this passage. And uh, it's not the word you'd think of. It's not the word desire. It's not the word filled or knowledge or will or wisdom or spiritual or understanding. But it's found right there at the very end of the passage where it says the knowledge of His will in. That little word, I-N. You'll find it some 2,000 times in your Bible. And I'm not going to say to you that it means one singular thing every time that it's used. Context defines many things in the Word of God. But I did find it interesting that the first few times that you'll find the use of that little word in, in the Word of God, it's in relation to the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Ghost in the body of Mary. It deals with the idea of being within or contained inside of something. And what does it say? The knowledge of the will of God is what? It is pregnated inside or contained inside of what? Wisdom and spiritual understanding. Can I just put it as simply as I know how? Uh, You're never going to know the will of God for your life without at least a degree of wisdom and a degree of spiritual understanding. Now, before you get huffy, before you say, well, now, preacher, I'm not a smart person, I'm not a, I'm not a bright person or a brilliant, may I remind you that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord? That, that wisdom is something that is given not because we're bright, not because we're gifted, but the book of James chapter 1 says, if any among you lack wisdom, let him ask of the Lord, and the Lord will give him wisdom. You see, the reality is wisdom comes only through prayer. Wisdom comes only through a a determined seeking of the mind of God about a matter. So that tells me without prayer I can't know the will of God. But then I see something else. It says spiritual understanding. The Word of God teaches me that spiritual things cannot be discerned by the natural man. They are spiritually discerned. Well, how do we spiritually discern those? Well, the book of 1 John tells us that the Holy Ghost is the one that teaches us spiritual things. That unction that we have from on high, John said, you have no need that any man teach you. That selfsame anointing shall teach you. So I've got to go to the Word of God and have it explained by the Holy Ghost of God if I'm going to understand the mind of God. So without prayer and without being in a surrendered study of the Bible, reading the Word of God and seeking the mind of God, I automatically know that I cannot know the will of God for my life. See, the will of God is not always something that that God just turns on a light, and we know there are times when it's that way. But there have been times in my life when I've sought the will of God, and it took reading a few chapters, took reading a few books sometimes. And I don't mean the ones on my shelves, I mean the ones contained within God's holy word. There's been times when the will of God came through prayer came through me seeking the mind of God. And you have, you know me. You know I'm not a fanatic. Or if I am, I hope I'm a fanatic in the right way. You know I don't believe in wildfire or sensationalism. But there is a witness of the Holy Ghost that takes place in the heart of the believer. has nothing to do with an audible voice. has nothing to do with a vision from on high. But there are times when the Holy Ghost through prayer will confirm things in the heart and mind and life of the believer. You see, He wants them to be cultivated in it. It's not always something that's just going to come at the drop of a hat. And God's not playing hard to get. But sometimes the will of God is the process of us seeking the will of God. Sometimes what God's trying to get through to us, He's trying to get through to us through us trying to get through 
to Him. He wants us to be cultivated in the will of God. Dr. Bob Jones Sr. said that the definition of success is to find the will of God and to do it. To, to, to find the will of God for your life and to be obedient in it. It is the grandest aspiration that a Christian can attain to. It fulfills the greatest need that the Christian has. It is the grand purpose of our salvation that we know the will of God and that we obey it, that Christ should live through through us through the exercising of His will in our day-to-day lives. We ought to know the will of God. You say, preacher, I don't know the will of God about everything. Well, if you need to know the will of God about a matter, and you say, preacher, how do I know when I need to know the will of God about a matter? When the occasion arises, that a decision must be made, God will give you His will about a matter. If you're seeking it, if you're asking for it, and if you're obedient to it. You know, I think there's lots of times, and I'm trying to move on, I think there are lots of times when we're begging God for His will and He doesn't reveal it because He knows that if we knew it, we wouldn't obey it. If we're truly surrendered, truly submitted, and when the time is right, God will reveal His will if you're, we're praying and being faithful in the Word of God. So he prays for the will of God for their lives. Notice verse number 10. What does he say? And you'll find if you study this, uh, that each one of these statements, each one of these verses, verse number 9, he lists something. Verse number 10, he lists something. Verse number 11, he lists something. And then verses 12, 13, and 14 are all one uh, issue that is contained. But they're denoted by the use of a semicolon in the uh, Bible there in front of you. I believe that punctuation matters in the Bible, don't you? I know it didn't have punctuation in the Hebrew and the Greek, but that doesn't mean that the Hebrew and Greek did not imply some punctuation and some grammar. And I believe that those uh, punctuation marks, I believe they're there on purpose. Amen? Uh, There's too many places where if you disregard the punctuation, it changes the meaning of the Word of God for us to try to say, well, it wasn't in the Hebrew or the Greek, so it doesn't matter. I do believe it matters. So notice verse number 10. The second thing that he mentions, he says that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. The first thing he prays for is for the will of God for their lives. And the second thing that he prays for is for their walk with God in their lives. He's praying for their day-to-day behavior. Now, this is different from the will of God because the will of God oftentimes denotes the idea of things that, that God wants and expects of us that we do not know unless we're in communion with Him. But the walk of the believer denotes our behavior, our countenance, our conversation in this world that we live in. And what he's saying is, I'm praying, if I just put it as simply as I know how, I'm praying that you'll behave like a Christian. You know, it's funny, there's times uh, we tell kids to behave all the time. You better behave, you better... You ever met an adult that you wanted to say that to? (laughs) You better behave, you better learn, uh, you better straighten up, you better learn how to live for the Lord, or you're going to make a wreck of your life. And that's what Paul's praying for for them. Uh, He's praying that their behavior, that their outward testimony and their outward behavior would be in such a way that would be pleasing to the Lord. Notice three things that he points out. First, he wants them to have a faithful walk. He says, walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. 
That word pleasing is important. You'll find it many, many times in the Word of God. One of the times that sticks out in most people's minds is Hebrews 11, 6, without faith it is impossible to please Him. Uh, and I do believe there's a difference between faith and faithfulness in the Word of God. I, I understand that they're two different words, but you won't be faithful if you don't have faith. Amen? And uh, one of the places that faith comes from is from faithfully walking with the Lord and seeing Him intervene and come through and deliver you time and time again. But there's another Another verse that comes to my mind with that word please or pleasing in it. I believe it really defines what, what Paul's trying to say. It's John 8:39. The Lord is speaking, and he says, And he that sent me is with me, speaking of the Father. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. The greatest thing a Christian can ever do is learn to live in a way that pleases God. Again, I wonder how many of us, if we, if we turn the spotlight on our behavior, take for today, for instance. I, I've not, there's no one in this room other than my wife that I spent any time with and my son today. I don't know what your day held. But I wonder if you could just rewind the tape on your life today and ask yourself, did I have a single moment today that was displeasing to the Lord? Maybe it was a thought that you had. Maybe it was a word that you said. Maybe it was an attitude that crept its way into your day today. Maybe it was something you did. Maybe it was something you should have done that you didn't do. But most of us would have to admit that there are times in our life that if the Lord Jesus was to return in that very moment, we'd be embarrassed by the way that He found us. He says, I want you to be faithful. I want you to live in such a way that pleases the Lord. And the Lord Jesus Christ is our model. What did He say pleased the Father? He said, the things that I do, the way that I behave, that I'm consistent, that I'm committed, that I'm consecrated to Him. We ought to live daily with the idea, how can I please God today? How can I put a smile on the face of God with the way that I behave? I believe there's lots of things, and we could catalog probably a 100,000, but I believe it pleases God when we pray and pray sincerely. I believe it pleases God when we love and read and obey His Word. I believe it pleases God when we brag on Him and praise Him. I believe it pleases God when we try to witness to others and tell them about the grace of God in our lives. And I believe it pleases God when we try to mimic and try to replicate the behavior and attitude and spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ in the way that we deal with each other. He says, I want you to have a faithful walk. Notice the next phrase. He says that you might walk worthy of the Lord and all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. He wants them not only to have a faithful walk, but a fruitful walk. He wants them to live in such a way that Christ is manifest and God is glorified. So many of us, if we really were to look at our lives, we'd find out that we're like the fig tree that Christ cursed. We have leaves of religion. We look awful good. But when it comes down to it, there's no real fruit in our day-to-day lives. You say, how do you measure and define fruit? Well, I've heard it in two different ways, and I believe both of these, in a sense, are true. The fruit of anything is a replication of itself. And I believe certainly that winning people to Christ is represented by the idea of fruit. But I believe it goes even further than that. The Word of God in the book of Ephesians speaks about the fruit of the Spirit. And I believe that anything that God produces in our lives is considered fruit to the mind of God. 
He certainly doesn't produce anything corrupt. He certainly doesn't produce anything perverse. Everything that God produces in our life is for His glory and for His honor. And let me just put it as simple as I can. Are we growing in our day-to-day walks? Are we growing? Are we closer to the Lord today than we were a month ago? We always hear people say ten years ago or five years ago or one year ago. But truthfully, if something's in the ground and if it's living, it'll be in a perpetual state of growth and development. So I wonder how many of us, just just to clip it short, how many of us are closer to the Lord today than we were one month ago? How many of us are closer to the Lord today than we were just a few weeks ago? Could we look backwards in our life and say, if I was to be honest, I've not learned anything new about God. I've not made any greater commitments to the Lord. I've not given up anything in my life that was displeasing to Him. I'm in the exact place, or some of us would say I'm in a worse place than I was a month ago, let alone a year ago or two years ago. He wants them to have a fruitful walk. Notice the third thing. Look what he says, and increasing in the knowledge of God. He wants them to have a furthering walk. Do you know that your behavior can affect your fellowship with the Lord? I know that's overly simplistic. But sometimes in this topsy-turvy world that we live in, it seems as though people believe that they can behave any way that they wish and it won't affect their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd have us to understand that our walk will determine our wisdom concerning Him. What did the Apostle Paul say? He said, evil communication corrupts good manners. That means what we know about God, what we understand, our doctrine can affect our walk, but our walk oftentimes can affect our understanding and our perception of him. You'll find that if you look at families, that a, a child that whose, whose will has never been broken, I don't mean that in a mean-spirited way, but if you've raised kids and raised them right, you know what I mean when I say that. They have to be shown that they, uh, they don't run things, that they don't run the home, that they don't run mama, that they don't run daddy. And you'll find that, that children whose will has never been broken, children who have a rebellious streak in them, oftentimes they have a distorted view of authority and of their parents in their life. They have no real view of authority. Why? Because their behavior has shaped and molded their perception of their parents or of the authority figures in their life. Well, it's no different than us. I would tell you that God is a long-suffering God. You know that? I mean, God is a long-suffering God. I wouldn't put up with me near as much as God puts up with me. But there are times in our life where God's long-sufferingness, sometimes we will twist it and pervert it and corrupt it uh, to change our perception of God that He's okay with our sin. God's not okay with your sin. God's not okay with my sin. When we do wrong, it is displeasing to God. God wants our walk to be in such a way that we come to know know Him in a closer way. Notice a third thing. Look at verse number 11. He, He uses this word, strengthened. Now, we don't use that word very commonly today, but it's a good, strong Bible word. Strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. First, he prays for the will of God for their life, for them to know it and to obey it. Then he prays for the walk with God of their life, that they would walk with the Lord and be pleasing to Him. But then thirdly, uh, he prays for their wherewithal by the power of God, their strength. He prays that they'd be strengthened to stand and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very easy to get weary in serving the Lord. It's very easy to get weary in this day that we live in. Especially in a day where it seems like there's no one serving the Lord. 
And I know that sometimes it feels like that. I spoke about that at the beginning of the service. Sometimes we get our eyes on those that are failing, those that are compromising, those that are giving in and giving out, and it's easy to get weary in this world that we live in. But the Apostle Paul says, I am aware of how easy it is to get weary, and I want you to know that I'm praying for you that the Lord supernaturally will strengthen you to stand for Him in these days. Notice three interesting things. Notice first off the might of their strength that he speaks of. Look what it says. Strengthened with all might. We know what that word might is or mighty. It denotes the idea of physical and brute strength, but it also denotes the idea of endurance or perseverance. And so when we speak of someone that is mighty, we're not just speaking of their stature, we're not just speaking of their strength, but we're also speaking of their steadfastness. And what he says is, I want you to have all might in the things that you do. I want you to be a strong Christian. Now, I know sometimes we go through times of discouragement, but it's not the will of God, by and large, for believers to live in a state of perpetual discouragement. I understand it's easy for a preacher to stand up in a pulpit and say that. And I understand that this preacher, nor any other preacher, nor anybody else around you is dealing with the things that you're dealing with. They may be dealing with more, they may be dealing with less. But sometimes we hide behind this idea of you don't know what I'm going through. Sometimes that becomes a crutch for us to stay in a perpetual state of discouragement, sourness, and just stay in the midst of of bitterness. And I'm reminded of Naomi when she, through her own sin, she went down to Moab, spent ten years there. She lost her husband. She lost her uh, two boys. She lost one of her daughter-in-laws. She comes back to Bethlehem and she says that the, I went away full, but the Lord hath brought me home empty. She said, call me Mara. Call me bitterness. Call me sorrow. We find that we go down about three chapters over, and Naomi, she's not sorrowful anymore. She's bouncing that little grandbaby. She's bouncing little Obed on her knee. And you don't find Naomi griping and complaining anymore by the end of the book of Ruth. The kinsman redeemer has come in. Ruth has been redeemed and exalted. And now Naomi, who had went away bitter, or had went away happy and returned bitter, returned empty. Now her life is no longer empty. She is no longer bitter. The Lord has filled her cup till it overflows. That's what God desires for our lives. And it's not His will that we stay in a perpetual state of discouragement. Now, some of you are saying, whoa, wait a minute, preacher. The very Apostle Paul himself got to a place of discouragement. He begged God three times to take away a thorn in the flesh. Yes, he did. And the Lord said, no, Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. Yes, that is what the Lord said. But then he went on to say, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. You know what Paul then said? He said, I will therefore joy and glory is what he said. I will therefore glory in mine infirmities. You see, God gave him a supernatural strength. And we see the, the pure and sheer might of it by his response that these infirmities that haven't gone anywhere, they haven't changed, he's still got a thorn in the flesh. Paul says, now I'm able to glory. Notice the might of their strength. But then notice, secondly, the measure of their strength. There's a very important word found in verse number 11. And again, it's, well, it's one of these words you may have not even noticed. But notice it with me. Strengthened with all might. Now, what does it say next? Does it say out of His glorious power? No. It says according to His glorious power. I wonder what the measure, what the reservoir is of the strength that God can give the believer. 
I'm reminded of a story that J. Vernon McGee told one time of two millionaires that were out on the golf course. I know strange. Who would ever think you'd see a millionaire on a golf course? But they go sometimes. And these two millionaires are out on the golf course, and it's one of them real expensive clubs that people like me and, and the fellas I golf with <laughs> were never going to go in. And they had caddies, you know. And these two millionaires are out there, and they're playing golf, and they're, you know, they're puffing on the cigars, and they're out enjoying the day, and what have you. Uh, it come time to tip the caddies. And one of these millionaires reached into his pocket and pulled out a $5 bill and handed it to him and said, Thank you, friend. I appreciate you carrying my bag. Well, that didn't seem like any problem until the next millionaire reached into his pocket and pulled out a $50 bill, handed it to his caddy and said, I appreciate your hard work. Go and have a rest. You say, What's the difference, preacher? Both of the men are millionaires. Neither one of them, be it $5 or $50, was a big dent in their wallets. You see, the first millionaire, he tipped that caddy out of his bank account. But you see, that second millionaire, he tipped that caddy according to his bank account. There's a vast difference between out of and according to. Now, the Bible could have said out of, and it would have been true that He'd strengthen us with all might out of His glorious power, because it is Him that the power comes from. But aren't you thankful that your King James Bible does not say out of, it says according to. So that tells me something. That tells me that when I'm weak, that tells me when I'm discouraged, when I'm downtrodden, when I tap into the reserve of power from on high, when I get a hold of God and He strengthens me, He's strengthening me with the same power and the same might that raised the dead. He's strengthening me with the same strength that parted the Red Sea. He's strengthening me with the same strength that called down fire from heaven. He's strengthening me with the same strength that He's going to use when He returns in power and in glory. And He's not just strengthening me with that strength. He's strengthening me according to that strength. There is an abundance of strength that's available for the believer. And then notice thirdly, the manifestation of their strength. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, boy, preacher, if I could tap into that strength, you wouldn't believe what I could do. If I could tap into that strength, I mean, I'd be like James and John. I'd call down fire from heaven, or try to anyways, upon folks that, that blasphemed the Lord. If I had that kind of power, man, I mean, I'd be leading huge revival. If I had that kind of power, I would be a force to be reckoned with. But how does Paul describe the manifestation of that power in their lives? Look what he says. Unto. Now, that means this power leads you to. This is the result. This is what this power does in your life. Unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. You see, the manifestation of this strength in the life of these believers is patience and faithfulness and long-suffering and steadfastness. You know, it's easy to serve God when things are going well. And it's easy to serve. I, you know, I know some folks, and, and, I, and I believe the Holy Ghost is in what I'm about to say, and I believe you'll understand the spirit with which I'm about to say it. But, you know, you get folks sometimes that, that look at a pastor, and they get sort of a critical spirit in their attitude as well. You know, he just he likes to get up and preach. Everybody pays attention to him, and he's the star of the show. And everybody looks at him, and 
so on and so forth. Could I say a lot of times that the measure with which the Lord blesses us is in accordance with the measure in which He burdens us. Oftentimes, the burden of the pastorate, you feel like such a failure. You feel so insignificant. You feel like such a, 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 a uh, absolute uh, loser, if we could put it that way, because of the things that occur, that oftentimes a pastor needs that time in which he's seeing God move and work in the lives of those that are around him. But can I say that the pastorate is not enveloped with the idea of what takes place behind this pulpit three times a week. The difficult thing in pastoring is not preparing sermons. The difficult thing in pa- there's plenty of folks that could prepare sermons, plenty of folks that could get up and preach them, plenty of folks that lack the time in the hospital and folks hugging on their neck and thanking them for coming by. But it's in the day-to-day of battling with the spiritual battle through prayer and through trying to remain faithful and to, through trying to glorify the Lord and see God move and work in the lives of the people that God has entrusted to your fold. It's through the day-to-day the incremental, the mundane that the battle really comes. And the strength of God, more often than not, is not manifested through the great and bright sparks that fly, be it behind the pulpit or when a Sunday school's teaching, uh, teacher is teaching Sunday school, when a singer is singing, whatever may happen. The real measure of the strength of God is not can we go when it's easy, not, not how high can we jump when we're in a mood to jump, but can we sing when we don't have a song? Can we continue when we don't feel like going on? Can we be faithful when we're not feeling like being faithful? Will we be in the house of God when no one else is there? Will we read our Bibles when no one's around to clap and, and applaud us on the back? Will we pray when our prayer closet seems cold? The strength of God is manifest through our stick and our steadfastness in the difficult and dry times in the Christian walk. I'll tell you right now, it takes a lot more strength to go into the prayer closet when you don't feel nothing than it does to get into the pulpit when you feel everything. It takes a lot more strength to go and pray for that child or that grandchild or that brother or sister or mama or daddy when they seem cold and indifferent and like they have not taken a move or a step towards God. It's like they're encased in concrete, like their heart is made out of stainless steel and you've been praying and you've been praying and you've been praying and here you've woke up and God's burdened your heart again and you don't feel like going in that prayer closet. You don't see that it's doing any good, but the strength of God helps you. You take step by step into the presence of God. You don't feel good. You don't feel anything. But you have faith that your prayers are getting through. And so you grab hold of the horns of the altar another time and beg God for their soul. That's how God strengthens you. And it's not flashy. And it's not romantic. And it's not impressive. But anybody can go when the going's easy. Anybody can go when the going's good. But it takes the strength of God to go when things don't go so well. We see the man... And by the way, notice that little word, joyfulness. Joyfulness. You know, there's some people, the greatest joy they get out of life is in complaining and griping. No, that's not the attitude of a Christian. Joyfulness. Joyfulness. Some people, they don't get attention and, and applauded. Uh, for good things, so they seek it through bad things, so they martyr themselves and complain, and they're down in the dumps all the time. That's not glorifying to God. You've got a lot to shout about. You've got a lot to rejoice about. God's still saved you. He's still on the throne. You ought to have some joy in your Christian life. And sometimes it takes the strength of God to have 
that joy. When you don't feel it, you still ought to try to flaunt it. Amen. You still ought to try to smile and enjoy the Christian walk. Notice a final thing, and I'm just going to touch on these, and then we'll close. Look at verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, we're going to read the other verses as we move on, but let me just pause there because I want to say that he has prayed for the will of God for their lives. He's prayed for the walk of God uh, in their lives. He's prayed for the wherewithal of God through his strength uh, through their lives. But then he prays for the awareness of the things of God in their mind and in their life. You see, really when he says giving thanks... He's saying, I want you to be aware of these things. I want you to consider these things. I want you to be thankful for them. I want you to know about them, and I want them to change your life. And he names about four things very quickly. Notice first off the provision for the believer. He wants them to have a comprehension of what God has done. He says, who hath made us, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life. Now, when I say provision, I don't just mean Temporal, material, financial. Now, God does provide our means. But let me tell you something. The day that you learn that what God does in our life through our wallet is far less significant than what He does in our life through our witness will be a good day in your life. It's not to say, I mean, we all have bills, we all have financial struggles. I don't know anybody in this room that's wealthy. At least if you are, I better not just be finding out about it right now. Amen. But but honestly... What he's saying here goes further than just the temporal. When he speaks of the inheritance of the saints in light, light denotes the idea of the glory of God. You remember what's said uh, just a little bit later on in this book. He speaks of uh, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's speaking of all the things that have been afforded us, all the heavenly riches. And I don't mean a mansion, I don't mean a street of gold, but I mean all of the strength and all of the grace and all of the forgiveness and all the privilege that we have in Jesus Christ, that He will meet all of our needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He says, I want you to be aware of that. I want you to be aware that you're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. I want you to be aware that when you come into trouble and come into problems, you're a child of God. God is your Father, and He takes your behalf for His glory. Notice a second thing. Look at verse 13. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. Now I'll admit to you, we're going to kind of divide this into two here. It could be one, but I just want to mention two. Uh, First off, he mentions the provision of the believer, but secondly, he mentions the past of the believer. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. There are constant reminders all through the Word of God of what we used to be. If we were to go through and underline every time, such were some of you, <laughs> that idea, that truth is found. Maybe not just that word, those words, but where that truth is found. Such were some of you. You were wicked. You were unregenerate. You were heathen. You were pagan. You say, but I was raised religious. Well, you, listen, you can be pagan and still be religious. There's whole world religions that are, that are pagan. And, and to be pagan means that the devil was your daddy and that you were lost and undone without Christ. And I believe Paul wants them to remember what they used to be. Colossae was a great center of religious worship in this part of the world. Undoubtedly, some of these people that were in this church had once gone and offered sacrifices at idols of wood and stone and gold and silver. And he says, I want you to remember what it was like to be gripped by the power of darkness. But then notice the third thing. He denotes the privilege of the believer and hath translated us 
into the kingdom of His dear Son. I'm thankful that nowhere in the Bible you find it where God mentions our past, but what He mentions our present and our future too. He doesn't just mention what we were. He mentions what we are now in Jesus Christ. Those very same verses that say that you were lost, you were undone, you were in darkness, you were wicked, you were vile, such were some of you, is the very ones that turn around and say, but now are ye washed, now are ye righteous, now are ye sanctified through Jesus Christ. We ought to be aware of that in our lives. We ought to never forget what we were, but we ought to never forget who we are now in Jesus Christ. And notice a final thing, and I'll close verse 14. How did that happen? He denotes the propitiation for the believer in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now, this sentence goes on a little further. In fact, it, this sentence is so long, it begins in uh, verse number 9 and ends down, I believe, in verse number 19, uh, that it actually prompted me to look up what the longest sentence in the Word of God is. It's not here. It's found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses uh, 3 through 9, I believe it is. Uh, but it's such a long passage, such a long sentence. It goes on to describe all the glories of Jesus Christ, all His preeminence and His wonderful nature, all the things that He's done. I encourage you to read it. Uh, when you get time. But it's interesting that before it mentions anything else about him, it mentions redemption. And what Paul's saying is, I want you to be aware that you've been forgiven of your sins. Don't want you to ever forget. You know, it's possible to forget. That's what it says, what Peter said. That they forgot that they'd been washed from their old sins. I know we think, oh, that could never happen. I don't think Peter's necessarily saying that they have forgotten academically or intellectually. I think he's saying in their heart and in the way that they live and the way that behave, they've forgotten that they were washed from their old sins. Paul says, I'm praying for you that you never forget what Christ has done in your life, that you never forget that you've been redeemed, that you never forget who it was that found you in darkness, translated you into His kingdom, that you never forget that though you were a child of hell, now you're a child of God and that Christ is your Lord and Savior. He said, I'm praying for these things for you. And I'm thankful that this book... I, listen, I am a dispensationalist, but I'm not a hyper-dispensationalist. And even if I was, even hyper-dispensationalists would tell us that this portion of the Bible is for you and I. I believe the whole Bible's for us in, in some sense or another. But I believe if Paul prayed this for them, and I believe it was within the will of God, I kind of believe that Jesus Christ is praying this for you and I. I believe this is what God desires for you and I. And I believe we ought to pray for it for ourselves. And I believe we ought to pray for it for one another.